welcome to the Holden Village Podcast. Holden is a community of education, programming, and worship located in the remote wilderness of the Cascade Mountains. These snapshots provide a glimpse into the learnings taking place in our community. Let's tune in to this week's highlight. You know, we all come to Holden to get famous. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> get away from all the society. Right, exactly. Famous. <laughs> I mean, sure, the chipmunks find us famous. Oh, totally. <laughs> They're like, yeah, we're we're deities for them. <laughs> Fluid. <laughs> so that's a 99 aged shupoir, and then this is a danjong oolong, and so it has sort of like a gingery spiciness to go along with like a deep earthiness. There's even like a slight sweetness at the back of the tongue. I'm so delighted that we get to do this. Yeah. Thank you for serving tea. This is such a such a delight. Yes, it's a great like just a great practice to share with people, help people like slow down. So that's yeah, that's part of my my purpose in the world is helping adults feel like kids and just helping people slow down in general. Sacred workplace. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, how would both of you like to introduce yourselves and maybe say one inspiring thing that you've encountered in the last 48 hours? My name is Piyush Kumar. I'm an AI and systems scholar. Uh, my work is focused on essentially uh, building tools uh, for cultures and communities um, to be more equitable, more harmonious. And there's a specific role that technology and AI plays into that. And one of the main emphasis that I have is that how do we build these technologies and AI to help these communities, help our communities as in you know where we live, where we eat food, where we grow, you know, where we work, to be more equitable and more rich and more harmonious, bridging in the, the process and the people part of that with the technology part. Yeah, one of the things I, I feel particularly inspired by, especially being here in the village uh, in the last two days and interacting with people is, you know, our happiness is essentially a, a collective state, you know, and uh, I can be happy if my, my neighbors are happy, my, my relationships are happy. That's something I've observed, uh, you know, in some of the classes and the courses that we have facilitated as to like how much meaning people find through this relational aspect where the other person is also experiencing something deep and something meaningful. Excellent. Yes. We're all generally happy around here. <laughs> so my name is Marisa Hebb. Something that was inspiring to me in the last 48 hours, this sense of joy and service that I see here and that there's like this sense of fulfillment in that you can just see in the way that people are interacting and of caring for each other and caring for the place. It's really sweet. I have a number of areas of expertise. One of them is actually in community building. I worked in a program, in a semester program for juniors in high school that was sort of like Beautiful. an intensive four-month experience of how to be in community together. That school was on a farm and so I was working both as a classroom teacher, Mandarin language, and also as a, an assistant farm manager and sometimes the farm manager. The students would do the work on the farm and they would take care of the place and they also had a very academic, rigorous experience at the same time. They learned how to cut down trees and take care of the classrooms and the animals and do the dishes and prep the food mm. with the chefs moving in community rhythms together while also doing rigorous academic work. Yeah, it was wonderful, really like 
intellectual and fun. So there's a lot of ways in which being here feels resonant with that. So while well, I have this you know, 20 year background in food production, like very hands-on on the land, permaculture and organic farming and diversified vegetable production, some animal husbandry, but I also, during that time, trained in a couple of different body-based trauma healing modalities. So I'm a somatic experiencing practitioner. And so I work both in this realm of like the, the body and the individual and the wisdom of the heart, the wisdom of the body, and also the wisdom of the land, the wisdom of the created world, the natural world. In the, these past three years or so, I've been working with uh, an organization called We Are Open Circle that they consult with and offer tools for groups, whether it's a community group to a corporate group and everything in between, um, for adapting to change and accessing collective wisdom. So there's these uh, facilitation practices and tools that we use to support groups to move through transitions and to build healthy cultures, basically. So both social social technologies as well in a, in a different way. <laughs> in different ways. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's talk somatics because I feel like that's something all three of us have a resonance in. We talked a little bit during that one lunch about sort of frequencies. My resonance of somatic therapy would be like how to use sound across meridians. How do you want to talk about somatic therapy? Or what are your favorite senses? Like what's your avenue? <laughs> what's your avenue? If you could keep two, like what would they be? For me, it'd be sound and touch. That's a good question. <laughs> you know, we talk about interoception as another one, which is mm -hmm. like our body's ability to inform us what's going on inside. And then there's proprioception, which is like a sense of where we are in space. I also studied um, Western herbalism pretty intensively as well for a period of my life. And that time period of like working with the plants, I found that, that there was a, another sense coming online or like being developed through that practice, which was being able to understand cues from plants what their medicinal properties are that I think is innate that we just haven't we've kind of like don't use anymore I I'm a pretty tactile person definitely a really important one for me yeah touch yeah. and and like kinesthetic like in terms of my learning like kinesthetic learner movement touch and movement are really important for me sight would be mm -hmm. somehow very important for me you know to be able to like look at things and like put them into a perspective sure. you know it's like what is the picture here that's being formed, you know? Yeah. And then a, a sense of like feeling, like, you know, body feeling. I'm a person who gets goosebumps all the time, mm. <laughs> you know? <Awesome. laughs> and uh, it's because uh, as I'm moving and, you know, any cues or any information that I'm picking up, you know, it's, I'm, I'm feeling it in my body first, you know? Mm. Um, so it's a very physical sense, you know? So like the sense that comes from the skin, right? The touch kind of thing, you know? And then over time, as I kind of deepen into my meditative, contemplative practices, I started noticing like the, the aspect of time as a sense as well, you know, and it's like, I mean, more from a scientific perspective, you know, we always talk about space-time, right? The space-time, what is the, you know, the, the space-time dimension? So like across the space-time, like what is this picture that is being formed? You know, in, in Buddhism, there's actually a term for that and it's called mandala. Very beautiful practice, right? A lot of these uh, traditional religious practices that people 
embody and they practice, it captures something deeply, something deeply symbolic. And so if you go to uh, mostly like in Tibetan Buddhism and many different forms of Buddhism as well, but mostly in Tibetan Buddhism, you'll see, you know, that these monks, they gather around like a, a floor and they create these very intricate patterns. And that's the mandala that they're creating. And they have these um, colored sand uh, or colored flower. And uh, they have, you know, sort of like a, a small, like a lamp <laughs> almost, you know, through which that uh, sand actually drops down. And they hit that lamp with a little stick and it just like goes down little by little, right? And they've spent, they're very particular and very, uh, very precise with their movements, right? Yeah. And then they create these beautiful, amazing, intricate shapes. Now that shape is created over time, right? And that's like the mandala of what is being created. And once it's done, they wrap it all up so that they can come back and do it again. But then once, when, you know, when, when the mandala is like finished um, and you see the entire picture, and that's the kind of sense through my meditative practices I started getting is the sense of this picture that is created over time. As Marisa was saying, you know, sort of like deepening in these practices allowed allowed me to open up with other senses as well. There's another practice that I do, which is called Laya Yoga, which is essentially meditating on the sounds, the internal sounds. And these are basically pure frequencies, right? It's like just one pure frequency. Yeah, the and you're meditating on the, yeah. yeah, the bija, the mm. seed sounds. Yeah, yeah exactly. Seems like you know something about that. Anything that has to do with frequencies, and so I've I've found the Himalayan library of tones mm -hmm. to be the most rich that I've come across. Internal mantra is very profound for me as a practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really I'm glad you brought up the sound piece also about the meridians. I'd love to learn more about that. I worked for an acupuncturist for about eight years. Ah, beautiful. I was thinking of studying <laughs> acupuncture. I did a little bit with her, and, and also I forgot to mention that singing and dancing are a huge part of my background as well, and those are part of the tool sets that I use in terms of like the working with the collective and accessing collective wisdom. Yeah, the music, the vibrations, the sound, the rhythm yeah. are all major parts of my toolbox, tool belt, kit. Totally. And I'm sure we can, I, we can geek out a lot about the, yeah. the meridian part. Um, <laughs> Uh, we could leave that for another time, but yeah, singing, sing, I mean, the voice is the most powerful instrument yeah. of them all, and so um, I do a lot of work with improvised theater and helping people overcome their own timidity um, and to help create their own story or be aware of the various unconscious repressed parts of their characters <laughs> that want to come out that they don't give permission to come out. Um, yeah. Singing, musical improv is my ultimate favorite. So creating musicals on the spot. If anyone just wants to break so out into great. song um, <laughs> at any point, that can happen. Um. <laughs> Talking about that that region of Kashmir, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's 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 really beautiful in in the ways um, that entire region inspired uh, so much of the the noticing of this the mystery of of humanity. You know. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, and that's one of the traditions I deeply connect with as well. Mm. Uh, and specifically, you know, I think you just named something about like how Sufis and Buddhists and Hindus like sort of merge in that place, yeah. right? And there's like a big history towards that, right? And yep. in fact, around 8th century AD is called the, the Renaissance period of mysticism mm -hmm. because that's the place where a lot of the, the mystic, the mystical traditions of the world, uh, yeah. not just that region, of the world actually blossomed you know yeah. so we're talking about like mystical islam um, i mean islam obviously came a little bit later but just the the 
precursor of that, the mm-hmm. mysticism aspect of it, started blossoming around that time. So what we call Sufis, what we call uh, you know the the Sha- the Kashmiri Shaivites, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know it's also a mystical tradition of Hinduism, and then the Vajrayana tradition of Buddhism, right? All melted in that one place. In the Kashmiri Shaivism tradition, you know there is a very deep significance to the nature of the sound and how it's produced, right? So, I mean, we were just talking about Laya Yoga, which also comes from Kashmiri Shaivism tradition, you know, and it's the the focusing on these beja mantras and beja sounds, right? But there is a sense of like where they symbolically describe the aspect of creation through the movement of the sound as it happens in the human body. I don't quite remember all the exact uh, terms, but I remember the three main stages there. So it's called para, para work and work. So para is actually means pre, pre, pre anything. <laughs> para mm-hmm. means like the before anything, right? Um, and so para is like where the sound actually starts and it starts like way down in our bodies, you know, in the, in the lower uh, sort of like energetic centers of a body. Sure. And this is where uh, there is no definition to the sound. It's just pure sound, so to speak. There's no, it hasn't quite uh, become an expression that one can start identifying and putting qualities to it in the real world. Yeah, it hasn't so, been distilled through perception. Perception right. or, or any sense of duality. You know, it's like the, you know, in, in, in other words, it's like the pure unified space where the sound starts. And then as it starts coming up and it goes into our middle centers, the middle energetic centers, it becomes paravak. So work actually means word, loosely translated, and para means pre, so it's pre-word, right? So it's it's not the absolute sound now. It has actually some quality to it, but it's not quite a formed word yet. Right. And so it happens here, you know, it happens uh, typically in a heart area. And these are like med- like deeply meditative processes. You know, one can start experiencing where the sound, sound actually starts happening. These days I've been taking vocal lessons. One of the things that my vocal teacher says is like, notice how the sound starts in your belly. So that's the para. And then as it starts forming like tones and shapes and qualities, it's like the para work, it's like in the, in the heart. And as it comes up through the throat, where the sound becomes fully manifest, it becomes a word, something that people can understand and identify that this is this and not this, you know, right. and that becomes a word. So that's paravak. The, the formation of the sound is to this creation process itself, you know, like where it starts, like every creation starts from a unified field where yeah. there's no definition, right? So it's just like Akash. Yeah, um, just the Akash, yeah, just pure, yeah. Yeah, pure awareness, pure consciousness moves into like some kind of a definition, you know, some kind of quality to it. And then it becomes reality, the manifested reality, like things that we can touch, feel, hear. The incarnate word, like as it densifies into being, words were meant to be impactful, like sounds. I even think of, you know, the summer theme, which we can talk about as well. Eden is calling, like the, the naming of all the plants and animals was like the frequency utterance of like what that thing was sonically and so it's like the power of words or the power of sound through speech so yeah, there's so many and so many thoughts yeah <laughs> say, your thoughts. say all the thoughts say all the thoughts well, one of them is what, what you were sharing about the pre 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 yeah um reminds me one of the ways that we work uh in the trauma in somatic experiencing in the trauma healing modality is knowing that action like 
the body moves to act before the mind has given the cue. So our perception is that we make a decision and then we act, but actually what's happening, like if you measure the brain waves, what's happening is on a microscopic level, the movement actually begins before we've made the conscious decision to move. Totally. And so when you're working with memory, with body memories, the body remembers much more than our mind does in many cases. And when you make space for the body to tell a story that it remembers, that the mind doesn't remember, then you have someone moving from this deeply meditative state and they have no idea what their body is going to do next, but they've just allowed, this is part of what might happen in a somatic healing session. You've invited them into this space of allowing the body to express something that it needs to, say, for example, complete a defensive response that got interrupted and then stored in the body. Can come out organically and this person will be so surprised that their body is moving <laughs> in this way of defending themselves or something that they had no idea they needed to do, but in this context it suddenly releases an incredible amount of vital energy. So they call it prodromal and pre-prodromal. Like for example, especially when you're working with symptomatic syndromal situations like migraines and things like that what's the thing that comes right before that and then what's the thing that comes right before that and there's there's actually usually many many more layers of cues that come yeah. before the syndrome actually triggers that then become intervention points where you can actually retrain your system to manage a flow as opposed to going into that syndromal response Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, the body has so much so much wisdom if we just allow ourselves to tap into it. And we're also in a hurry. Like, it takes yeah. time to, like, give the body room to speak. Totally. And it's also a vulnerable place to be, too. It's to, like, actually be tuning into what the body's needs are and honoring them. It can feel like betrayal to, like, tune into what the body's needs are and then not honor them. So I think that's why a lot of us are just like, I don't even have a body. <laughs> like that way I can just override everything, all the cues. Absolutely. What makes you laugh <laughs> in general, but also with each other? <laughs> you go first. <laughs> we were uh, just today morning, we were sitting, uh, you know, and having breakfast and uh, you know how comfortable the chipmunks are around here mm. <laughs> and uh, so there's a chipmunk uh, you know we're just sitting and eating breakfast and a chipmunk comes right behind Marisa and uh, he just like pokes his head out you know Marisa doesn't uh, notice him so this chipmunk was just right behind Marisa and I just pointed that out to Marisa hey there's a chipmunk right behind you and as, as soon as I pointed it out the chipmunk just like went down below and screamed <laughs> 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 How dare you? Yeah, exactly. And Marisa just like burst out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you understand how the rules work? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So rude. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's like social cues here. Like, you know, yeah, right. Social guidelines. <laughs> Chipmunks are also, you know, beings that need to be respected. <laughs> um, I find hilarity in uh, putting it into the mandala version of it. Like just these chance happenings, how weird and funny they are. Like they happen and they just seem to be like funny because like who would have imagined this to be happening it this way you know to like spontaneity just spontaneity okay, and cool and just yeah exactly like things happening in synchronous to each other and i'm like that's really funny like it happened mm. this way what do you find hilarious and how do you find hilarity i like 
juxtaposition. So like irony, I saw someone was talking about the theory of tricksters and how tricksters have the most compassion because they're all about irony. They don't follow rules. They don't go from like one end of the polarity to the other. They just like messing with things <laughs> and having fun. And so in that way, like they have a totality, like their story is much more total than someone that would be, you know, on the right or wrong end of the spectrum, which we all have that sort of internal spectrum. But I loved how she like articulated that. So she said like, tricksters have more compassion because they have at least two stories within their internal view <laughs> that they, <laughs> and they want to destroy both of them, like, <laughs> which is great. As a result, I like a lot of dark humor because also tragedy allows you to have comedy as well. So for me, like if you can find comedy in the drama, I'm really into that, yeah. which is why my favorite improv, most people associate improv with comedy. I love dramatic improv. Mm. And that way you can get into like really like dark material. Yeah, depth as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and find lightness in that depth with, exactly. with, with the comic. I, I love that so much, you know, because archetypally uh, speaking also, in many traditions, one of the archetypal, you know, what we call like an enlightened being mm -hmm. is the trickster itself. The other term that people generally give the trickster is called the wise fool being foolish with wisdom like even talking about Kashmiri sh uh, Shaivism one of the archetypes of uh, Shiva there is the archetype of the wise fool in one of the very iconic poses he's uh, posed as a as the dancer as Nanatraj where he's wearing a snake on his uh, neck and uh, has uh, you know he's dancing on all these like weird poses very wild, wildly you know similarly in native uh, Indian traditions here in the US uh, I think it comes from Lakota the Hayuke is also that very primal spirit that people aspire to as the spirit of the trickster you know and Raven so yeah. the Haida has yeah Raven who steals the sun because why not yeah. <laughs> exactly you know yeah just like ruffle things up something new can sh uh, show up as well like rules are great like societal rules we have these rules it's great if they come from a nice, sincere place. If we're here to like redefine ourselves at every moment, we have to break every rule of who we think we are in that moment. Because that's the that's like the number one thing that traps us is these identities. It's like I'm this, I am that. How do we transcend that? There is a thing about morality, and then there's the thing about what in Buddhist tradition they call it the right action and the right. You know, so right yeah. does not come from morality here. It's it comes from authenticity. The yeah. wider and wider perspective. Yeah, that's great. I have a quartet back at home, and one of my friends in the in the quartet is from Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And in Pennsylvania Dutch, they have a word for the trickster, which is Nixie. Nixie, I've yeah, never heard of that. It's a really good word, and she she used to call me that for sure. <laughs> awesome. So Nixie, and I would, I would piss her off. It was like she was like aggravated, like it was like a loving <laughs> aggravation kind of like. <laughs> so definitely resonate with that too that's beautiful well i love yeah we can all sense it in each other yeah we're like totally. uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well this feels very conclusive to me i know we could probably talk for days oh my gosh. um yeah. but this has been absolutely delightful any closing thoughts or sentiments that you would like to say or anything at all i guess listening to the wisdom of the body as we step into this more and more globalized and more and more uh, stimulating world. Yep. The body is the thing that grounds us, finds us clarity. That's the theme that stood out to me. 
wonderful. Mm-hmm. Just really appreciate your welcoming and playfulness and wonderful tea. Yeah, thank you for the tea. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.